This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and Law.com. Welcome back to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thanks for joining us today. I am your host, Mark Kornfeld. I'm a shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, operating out of our Tampa office. And today, I'm genuinely excited to welcome someone I've been so fortunate to know both personally and professionally for many, many years, Ms. Lauren Dinas Midland. Lauren is Senior Vice President, Assistant General Counsel for Intellectual Property, Business, and Legal Affairs for World Wrestling Entertainment, Inc. That is quite a mouthful. Uh, Most of you recognize World Wrestling Entertainment, Inc. as WWE. Uh, Lauren has been at the WWE for about 20 years, and throughout that time, she has specialized in protecting WWE's intellectual property, negotiating product agreements, fighting counterfeiting, e-commerce piracy, and many, many other things which we hope to explore during this morning's pod. She is also often sought out as a speaker and presenter all over the globe, and we are quite thrilled to have her join us this morning. Lauren, thanks again. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me, and I really appreciate being a part of this podcast. So Lauren, when it comes to WWE, most people associate those initials with quote unquote, a wrestling company. But as we all know, WWE is much, much more than that. Uh, It's a publicly traded company with about 6 billion in market cap, whose assets uh, include not only the incredible talent and performers who entertain people around the world, uh, but who also most crucially have an unbelievable array of content and intellectual property, which serves at its core as the assets that you are principally responsible for protecting and defending. So why don't we start out briefly a little bit, just kind of a background on your career and how you wound up at WWE. Sure, thanks very much. Um, And as you're gonna see as an audience member, Mark probably knows about as much about WWE as I do. He's always a go-to source for anybody who wants both industry knowledge as well as product knowledge. And he certainly has been that for me as well. I, when I came to WWE, had not actually been a lifelong fan only because I didn't really know the product and that is more my fault than anything else. But I've obviously learned about it since coming here. My legal career actually started during college when I was at Vassar. I worked during the school year in vacations for a small intellectual property boutique law firm in Manhattan, studied very closely with one of the partners who trained me in how to do all things intellectual property for trademark prosecution. I worked there many, many years throughout college, as well as after graduation, even from law school, I stayed as an associate there. I then moved to a larger IP firm uh, that encompassed a little bit more uh, breadth in the IP world, such as litigation and anti-counterfeiting. And I learned a lot from both the number of partners there, as well as the larger uh, number of associates who are engaged in broader portions and different aspects of IP practice. And then I actually started at WWE the day before 9-11. So 9-10, I started at WWE. And up until that Friday, I'd been working in Manhattan, um, but started in Stanford that that Monday and was here on 9-11, got to know my department incredibly well that day as we sat huddled in one of the attorney's offices. 
Um, and I have to say my resume stops there. I've never looked for another job since I came here. I don't want to leave this company. It has been a fantastic ride. And what I've discovered about working for WWE is that it's like the best ride at the amusement park that you never want to get off. It is fast paced. It's dynamic. It has twists and turns. It's exciting. It's 24 seven. There's no off season. And basically in short, it takes your breath away. And it, it takes a special kind of person to work and be successful here. You need to be passionate. You need to be passionate about the product, about the company, about the industry, about your coworkers, and of course, about your role within all of that. Um, and over the past 20 years, I've seen so many changes at this company, including what seems small and insignificant, but is absolutely not because it was part of the mantra and the passion and, and spirit of the company is that we changed our name to World Wrestling Entertainment. And that was huge because we wanted to focus on the entertainment portion of this company. We launched WWE Studios, which is an entertainment film division. Women's wrestling has evolved and taken center stage, pardon the pun. Uh, we launched NXT, which was originally is supposed to be a developmental arm that quickly became a third brand all its own and has a force and a dynamic following that you can't deny. Um, our international business is growing, including the live tours, as well as our programming in these, in these parts. And I say the biggest change is probably the launching of WWE Network in 2014, which actually changed the way our fans consume our content. And I have to say, it's been nothing short of an amazing, amazing journey to be part of all of these changes. So uh, we covered a lot of ground there and hopefully throughout the pod, we'll kind of break you down both on a macro level and on a bit of a micro level about your duties and your contribution to the company. The company started out kind of as a tiny regional promotion in the East starting in Pittsburgh and then was well known in the New York territory. And now over the last 20 years has become you know, something of an entertainment juggernaut uh, and one of the largest content providers um, on the planet. Um, give the listeners a little bit of a flavor about how you've grown in your role as the company has gone from a lead, you know, a small promotion to an international content provider who's now a public company. Give people a little bit of a flavor about the diversity of your growth within the company's growth. Well, intellectual property certainly has grown, not just from something that was uh, initially thought of as something as a side thing, but it became the focus really of our legal efforts, um, at least one of the focuses of our legal efforts as it has to be. Um, intellectual property means many things. It's, it's protection of it is crucial when that is what is your bread and butter and that is what you own. And we own the content and that is one of the biggest things. Um, we own the, the ring names, we own designs, we own show names, we own corporate names and logos. And these are what we are then licensing to partners. So it has to have an intrinsic value and protecting that value is what is key. Um, and so this whole intellectual property protection means many things. And, and first, it means that you have to clear marks that you want to use. Uh, a, because you don't want to be infringing on the rights of others. B, you want to make sure, and especially we do, that we're first in the space. Um, and C, you want to make sure that you are choosing marks that you actually can own and stop third parties from using, but you want to make them unique enough so that they are then associated with your brand. After all, that is what a trademark is. Um, second, it means filing for the trademark and copyright applications and protections in territories and categories that make sense for your business. And as we grow as a business, that 
scope and that world uh, enlarges. Uh, we have to file where we sell our products and services. We have to file where we manufacture products or where our licensees manufacture products. And we have to file where we know to have counterfeit problems and piracy problems. And we also want to file in jurisdictions that are known as first to file, where if they file first, they can have the trademark rights and actually stop you from using. Third, IP protection for a company that is so huge now means watching for third party filings of your marks and filing oppositions against their applications so that they don't have these prior rights to you. Fourth, IP protection means proper licensing to third parties. We have 200 licensees worldwide uh, that manufacture all kinds of products from back to school items, action figures, video games, and home video products, name it, we make it. IP protection in those license agreements needs to be clear. It needs to have the proper protections. It needs to have quality control procedures. Uh, we also work with our licensed products on holograms and other authentication processes. Fifth, IP protection in a company like this that is growing means enforcement for, and I know we're going to get into that probably a little later, but for counterfeit product enforcement, it means registering your trademark registrations with customs. It means working with local international counsel. It means monitoring online activity and uh, shut down sales of counterfeit product. For online video piracy, it means figuring out the most effective strategy and monitoring and enforcing your content. It all sounds simple, but it's, it's really not. And all of this is a team effort. And I'm honored to have a team that I actually think is really best in class. And that team has grown over uh, the period of time that I've been with the company as our priorities have grown and as our, our enforcement problems have grown. So as the company expands, it is my pleasure to expand along with it and know where we're going and how we get there first to protect ourselves. So in the course of kind of laying out how you've grown in the last 20 years, it's become quite clear you're something of a global expert in IP enforcement. And it would be really helpful if some of the stuff you just outlined, you could unpack a little for the listeners um, in different lanes, if you will, um, specifically the differences perhaps between e-commerce enforcement, live show enforcement, merchandising, which you can get a little bit into. Um, give the folks a little flavor of the different uh, verticals that you deal with day to day uh, in the IP world. So uh, the online counterfeiting and in-person counterfeiting, those are two different entire worlds. You are absolutely correct in identifying that. And it's difficult to battle, but, but not impossible. Um, a lot of people will think of it only as a whack-a-mole, and I don't think that that's necessarily true. There is certainly an element to that as part of this, but you absolutely can be proactive. And I think WWE has put together and tailored an ROI that makes sense for us, as well as an aggressive program that we need to have in place for both our partners as well as our fans. First of all, we look at it at WWE, fighting counterfeit product on the one hand, We'll get to online piracy in one second, but fighting counterfeit product, it's no small task, but it's actually an obligation. We look at it as an obligation of the company. It's an obligation of any company that makes it a priority to be a good partner to its licensees who value the license that they've, that they've obtained from WWE. It's an obligation of a company that wants to join other brand owners in fighting against the drug lords and the terrorists and other criminal organizations that actually run the counterfeit underworld that most people don't realize exists, but it does. Um, equally important, fighting counterfeits is an obligation of any company that wants to protect its fans from inferior, potentially dangerous product. We look at these obligations and we take these obligations very, very seriously. And as I mentioned before, that such this kind of battle against counterfeit product requires a team. 
Uh, first, I have an amazing in-house lawyer um, on my team. He's my day-to-day -day enforcement guru. Uh, his focus is enforcement of every kind. Together, we've amassed a team of expert international enforcement counsel. We train them in the ways and products of WWE. Uh, they register our IP with customs worldwide. They train customs personnel and their own local enforcement counsel. They engaged in market surveys and raids where necessary. They even work with their other clients if they're going into one market that they know houses a lot of counterfeit activity. They'll include us in the raids and the surveys to cut costs and to be united. Uh, they also institute criminal and civil actions at our request where we feel is necessary. Um, but And last but not least, we've engaged best-in-class vendors who specialize in monitoring and enforcing on counterfeit products online. We review the cold reports that they send us on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. Um, we confirm what's legitimate product, what's not legitimate and therefore counterfeit, and then we instruct them where actions should be taken, which listings should be removed. Um, and for sure, this is a process that we've perfected over the years, working closely with our vendors so that they're trained in the WWE world, our products and our services. It's not easy. It's not simple. It takes a lot of handholding. It takes getting to know them and us. We engage in regular in-person meetings and online trainings during COVID period, but we make sure to keep that connection active and engaged. We go to visit them as often as possible. We see them at conferences. The attorney works with me and I, we speak at a lot of conferences and we're engaged in the anti-counterfeiting community. Uh, but most, most importantly, we make sure our vendors and our partners are up to date on all of the WWE brands and our priorities. Constant partnership and dialogue is actually what's key. And then ultimately what's most important is we are constantly reevaluating and evaluating this program and our strategy as well as our partners, because we have to stay ahead of the curve. We have to know where our fans are going to buy counterfeit products, to do online video streaming, and we need to be there hopefully before them, but at least when they're there. Uh, we need to be engaged and we always need to be with partners who are equally as engaged and equally as passionate. So um, as part of your kind of overall leadership in enforcement, you've kind of described an architecture which involves internal folks at the company, outside counsel around the country as well as internationally, uh, best in class vendors. Um, might be helpful to give the listeners a sense as to scope. Um, what kind of dollars are you talking about in terms of counterfeit? merchandise or e-commerce or piracy that you're kind of responsible for in terms of budgets and in terms of kind of the bottom line for the company uh, in protecting its most valuable assets? Well, without giving specific numbers, I will say I have a healthy budget. As I said, we work closely not only with outside vendors and counsel, but because of our relationships with the vendors and counsel, we're also very closely aligned and, and work very closely with other companies who are similarly situated, other entertainment companies, sports companies, and we talk and we are part of coalitions with them and, and we are in the same circle. So we've talked about budgets and I will say that WWE has a pretty healthy and robust budget. We don't spend money where it's not going to actually have a great effect on what we're doing. I will say that our strategy is aggressive and we do spend money to enforce. And you have to. You, this is not something that, at least the online video piracy, is not something you can do in online counterfeiting. It's not something you can do 
successfully unless you have an IT team that can create the programs to scour the internet, monitor it, and take it down and create reports. This is really something that vendors specialize in, and this is not cheap to do. But as I said before, it's absolutely an obligation of the company to, to really enforce the IP that we hold so dear and that we license to third parties. Um, but I do know that from the top, the directive has always been that we value our IP and it is something that we need to protect. So I've been very blessed to have a budget that allows me to do what I need to do. Um, in fact, before online video piracy became so uh, problematic in general for, for entertainment or, or content owners, um, we had really solely been focusing on uh, the online counterfeit problem for product. And I was sitting down with the then CFO of the company. This is over a decade ago. And he said, I, I, you know, I understand where you're spending all of your budget. And I think that you're you know, doing the, a good job at, at, at deciding where you spend, what you spend. If in a perfect world, you had every dollar you would want, what do you feel is missing from your program? And what would you like to do? Fortunately, I'd already been working with a vendor for many, many years, and I had asked them to put together a, a proposal of the one area that I thought was missing at the time, and that was our online video piracy. I asked them to do a trial to tell me what they were finding. Obviously, they couldn't enforce until we engaged them for the services, but what were you finding out there? What were we not able to find because we simply don't have the technology to do it? And so I had that at the go, at the ready, and I showed him what the problem was, the scope of the problem, the magnitude of the problem, and what could be done about it, and then for how much. And at the end of that meeting, I was given the budget to go ahead. And by the time I got to my office, I was actually granted the go ahead to tell the vendor to engage and to start working on the online video piracy portion. And, and uh, it just shows that you need to constantly be evaluating what you're doing and maybe sometimes shift priority, shift focus, shift dollars um, to what makes most sense. And that's what we're constantly doing here. We, we have not only an automated approach with vendors, we also have an analyst time uh, for people who are actually reviewing the content because you need to make a fair use analysis every time you're taking things down. Um, and so we need to shift where are we doing the analysis time versus uh, which content are we enforcing on most frequently or most often. Um, it's, it's a delicate balance that you need to constantly be engaged in and constantly thinking about. So there's a, a lot of diversity of opportunities and challenges that you're outlining, putting aside whatever the WWE budget is for enforcement. Um, this seems like in terms of scope, it's a very large problem domestically and internationally. Are we talking eight figures annually in terms of what you're saving the company? Nine figures, what's kind of just a general scope of the magnitude of this, this challenge that you see to day to day? Well, in terms of saving the company, I don't know if that's the way to analyze it, because as I said, it's, it's an obligation, it's a cost of doing business. So of course, we would hope that any uh, illegitimate sale would transfer and convert to a legitimate sale. And we do think that that absolutely happens. And that is absolutely one byproduct of removing counterfeit product from the marketplaces. In terms of the scope of problem we're finding, however, it is pretty significant. It's absolutely eight figures and more. Yeah, um, that's what I was trying to get at is sure. how, how, much, how much is being confiscated or removed from the marketplace. 
It is absolutely millions and millions of products, uh, of, of value of product. And, and you can tell that because of the, the sale price of each of these items online and the number of items that they at least advertise they have for sale. We also have confiscated physical product, both at the borders, as well as through market surveys and raids. We have confiscated millions of units over the years of counterfeit product. And this product, you know, we are not what's thought of as a luxury brand in certain respects. And, so, and we're not a pharmaceutical brand and we're not an automotive brand. And so the obvious dangers of counterfeit product of our brand might not be so obvious, but they are. They are. They could be action figures that are put together poorly and manufactured in countries where they are not following the regulations set in the United States. And you know, little parts of action figures can choke little children. And these are equally dangerous. Um, you have to think of it as a serious problem and a potential hazard for our fans. And so. It is just as important for us to protect our fans as it is for any luxury brand who just might only be concerned about the money and about their, their loss of sales. This is not just about that. So you've given kind of like a lot of different cool terms, piracy, counterfeiting, e-commerce, enforcement, um, kind of has like a, a sleuth element to it or a, like a undercover cop element to it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about kind of the micro, uh, maybe you can give a couple of anecdotes from the lanes I'm gonna outline. So WWE is a content provider at its core. It's got Monday Night Raw on USA. It's got, as you mentioned, NXT on Tuesday night on the USA Network. It's got SmackDown on Friday night in its deal and its partnership with Fox Network. As you mentioned, it just did a $1 billion deal uh, with NBC Universal and Peacock streaming service uh, where it licenses out its network. Uh, it's got merchandising, it's got sponsorship deals with folks like DraftKings, most recent deal that it's done. It does live shows with foreign sovereigns like Saudi Arabia. Give folks a little bit of a flavor about how IP kind of deals with the rock and roll nature of this company, you know, an anecdote, like something that might happen on a live show on Monday night or something that happens involving Saudi Arabia or something that might have emerged out of the network. So people can get a little into the micro uh, and the pace of what you do in real time. Well, in real time, it probably couldn't be a better description than if we were searching for one. Um, I actually live in real time in WWE world. Um, a lot of my counterparts in, in other similarly situated entertainment companies or sports entities, um, for example, have a lead time that they get in order to do any kind of clearance work for intellectual property uh, marks and logos and designs. I don't have the, the luxury of having that kind of clearance time, for example. And there are very often days that, as you've mentioned, we are live shows with no off season. We're live Monday night, for example, on Raw, where the creative writing team is actually maybe perhaps changing a tag team name where the storyline or the arc of the storyline, and they are coming up with new ring names or tag team names or match names, and they need clearance so that we can go live that night. Um, that is something I need to do on the fly, whether I am home uh, or in front of my laptop at the office, or I am on the go on my phone. I make sure to have all my clearance apps and, and uh, 
search tools at the ready so that I can do it wherever I am. And I often do. In fact, this past week, I did the, the very clearance work right before one of the matches. Um, things are constantly happening. We are, as I said, fast paced 24 seven company. We are dynamic. We are constantly moving. We are entertainment juggernaut that is just breathtaking um, in the sense that it takes your breath away at all times. And so part of my work needs to be, I need to be as excited and vibrant and, and active and engaged as the company is in what it's doing. So I need to be on at all times. Um, and it's exciting. It's fun because what I then work on behind the scenes is live that night and I can turn the TV on and watch what I just did. My small part in this small role, I could see it come to fruition on TV. And that's really exciting. Not everybody gets to have that. Most companies, um, you have lead time of clearance work, and then you might see the end result of your clearance and product and filings months or years later when the product finally comes out. But for us, the product comes out hours later or minutes later sometimes. Um, so from that aspect, that's, that's the IP involvement in it. We see the IP being created. And so I get the behind the scenes, peek behind the curtain of what's about to happen. Me, I always found that exciting and fun and, and to be part of that world is really, really amazing. Um, in fact, that's one of the biggest questions I'm always asked is, you know, how much behind the curtain do I get to peek? And I will say it's not all of it, um, but I get to see whatever I need to see in order to do my job in the right way. Um, but uh, it is absolutely dynamic and it's always in real time. Um, I know another anecdote you probably want me to talk about is the enforcement that I do at the live events. While my team handles the enforcement of online video piracy, both before, during and after any live event, um, we, I physically do the enforcement for WrestleMania for our Super Bowl events. Um, I work with a large team of outside counsel who handle and help us get a temporary restraining order so that we, we can seize any kind of counterfeit product that's being sold outside of the live events. I then, during the event, work with undercover officers as well as um, Homeland Security at times to seize all bootleg merch that's being sold at the events. We then go back into court. We get a nationwide year-long order against the defendants that we find that allows us to seize bootleg merch that's being sold at all of our domestic live events. And this is a really huge, huge issue for us because we want to protect our fans against wearing counterfeit product that is inferior quality and potentially hazardous. One of the things most people realize is if they see a t-shirt being outside, being sold outside in a parking lot for $10 and they think, oh good, I'm saving money. I don't have to buy the legitimate shirt inside that might cost more. What they fail to realize is where these shirts are produced and what they're made of and the ink and the the lack of quality in the actual fabric. It could be flammable, but the, the ink can cause allergy reactions in children. And most of these shirts are children's sized, so they're geared towards children wearing them. And we want to protect our fans from wearing this kind of inferior product. In addition, where the counterfeiters carry it on their person, uh, if your fans and your listeners knew, you would never want to be wearing one of these shirts. They're not sold in any kind of reputable vehicle or container. They are walking around, shoving them in their pants and in their jackets and under their armpits as they walk around and then they hold it out to sell you. And you don't know where these shirts have been. You certainly don't want to put them on your child. And so one of our goals is to protect our fans at these live events and remove that bootleg merch from the streets. It's, it's so, as I said, it's an obligation and it's a privilege to be part of it. So uh, I had the pleasure of seeing you during WrestleMania in Tampa. 
this past uh, April and uh, you were dressed up in like a hoodie and a baseball hat scurrying around with police and other law enforcement folks. Um, but why don't you tell people about kind of what the end result of that is with your kind of Santa Claus bags worth of stuff and how you have to go into court and get injunctions and give people a really quick flavor of that. And then I want to pivot to one other thing. It's one of the most exciting parts of my job. It's, it's where I get to be boots on the ground, hands there and, and physically doing it as opposed to sitting in an office working on something. And I'm not belittling that aspect of it, but actually to be on the ground, to see it, in, it come to life, um, to actually be the one to train a team of Homeland Security whose only ambition is to really help you um, to remove this product from the streets. It's really exciting to see the fans really want to buy legitimate product and not want to buy the, the inferior product that we're taking off is, is amazing. And to run this team, um, and it, it's a, really about a two-month effort on my end that I do it every year, and I absolutely love it. Um, yes, it involves the taking of the, uh, the bootleg merch from the bootlegger, uh, giving him a receipt so that if he chose to uh, challenge our seizure, he could, he could come into court. And if he were ever to be able to prove that it was actually legitimate merchandise that he had a right to sell, we, we have identified the merch, we have tagged it as, as having come from a specific person. We can always return it if it ever came to fruition that we had actually erroneously seized the merch from him. I will say that in the 20 years I've been doing this, that has never happened. A, we have never seized bootleg, we've never seized merch that turned out to be legitimate. And B, no one has ever even come down to challenge it because they know that it is all counterfeit. Um, one of the other issues that we have just consistently discovered is that there are groups of organized counterfeiters that follow the shows. They don't just follow WWE, they follow the, the, the you know, rock shows that all tours, they follow them. And to prove it, a lot of the shirts that we see have on the back of our the designs, um, they list the cities where we will be. Now, of course, as a touring company, when we were touring and when we will be touring again very soon, thank goodness, um, we publicly announce where we will be at what date. And of course that's so that you know fans can buy tickets and actually attend the live events. But as a consequence of that, the bootleggers also know where we will be at all times. And so the shirts tend to have a listing of all of the events where they will be. And that's to show that they can sell this shirt and still have this shirt, particular shirt be relevant at all the shows. And they can just follow us throughout these shows. And what we do see is that the bootleggers actually come from all over and they all have the same design, which shows that this is a one group working together, following people. And if we're not in, for example, Tampa that weekend, the next show that will be, they'll be following them. Um, and they use the same designs no matter where they're selling it. And so they're working in concert uh, to, uh, part the pun there, but they're working in concert to follow these shows, follow WWE, to sell this bootleg merch wherever they can. And we've seen repeat offenders more than once, for sure. Lauren, um, Buchanan prides itself on being a leader on issues relating to diversity uh, and being at the forefront of some of the issues involving social justice. Um, you are the senior uh, woman attorney in the legal department at WWE. Uh, and I think it would be helpful if you provided your perspective, uh, especially in the times we're living in as, as being a senior uh, woman attorney uh, at such a high profile public company. 
Well, thank you for teeing that up. I will say it's a question that I've often been asked from those outside of WWE, wondering what it's like to be a female executive at WWE. Although bear in mind, I wasn't always a female executive at WWE. I started as an associate counsel and became senior counsel, um, moved up to vice president and then became senior vice president, then became senior vice president and assistant general counsel. So it's been a slow and steady rise throughout the 20 years, but I've, I've earned my stripes here. Um, and I will say that WWE has always been incredibly supportive of females and males, no matter what. It is not a what is typically thought of as this male-driven, testosterone-ridden kind of company. Um, it, it's we've had female executives at the helm, at the table since I started here. And in fact, a lot of them I emulated in terms of how to be a female executive at WWE. And I, what I found is that it's no different being a female executive at WWE than it is anywhere else. You just have to be sure of yourself and you have to be secure in your knowledge. You, I, I don't pretend to be something I'm not. I don't pretend to know something I don't. I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I'm confident in what I know. I will offer opinions. I will offer advice. I will offer ideas. And that is how you get heard. I lean in. I take on. I take on other people's roles when they've left. If I'm so inclined or so interested or feel like I'm capable, um, and I do and I have, and I will continue to do that. It's no different than any other company where you just need to be who you are. You need to be good at what you do. You need to be passionate at what you do. And you will eventually rise. Um, I will say that uh, most attorneys don't still love being attorneys. They don't love what they do or where they do it. And I always tell people that I am still one of these really fortunate people who not only loves what I do, but I love where I do it. I genuinely get up every single day, still excited to come to work. And yes, I'm at the office um, and have been for quite some time, even during this COVID period. Um, I like being here. I like the face-to-face. -face. I like the, the vibe and the energy uh, of the company. I like being in the middle of it all. Um, passionate about what I do here. I'm always engaged. And I think that that is how you become successful in your role, wherever you are. Um, so for anybody who's ever asked me, how is it being a female at WWE? It is just like being a female, anybody else, anywhere else. And hopefully questions about being a female executive will stop being asked because it'll be just the norm and nobody will think that it's a question. Um, and I'm not, saying that your question was inappropriate. It, it, it's quite appropriate for, for, I think, what is the mystery that surrounds a wrestling company uh, or what is typically thought of as a wrestling company. We are an entertainment company. And just like any other entertainment company, we are aware of and mindful of and sensitive to social issues, gender issues, and, and all kinds of uh, issues that surround any other company out there. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground and now we're going to do a little bit of the lighter side and do some rapid fire uh, personal questions. First, who's your biggest mentor? I can't say I have just one. Uh, they've changed along the, my paths, uh, depending on the kind of guidance I think I needed at time. And it wasn't necessarily a one-on-one. -on -one. It was me watching and learning. Um, it, and this might sound a little hokey, but it was watching and learning Vince in meetings that I've had with him, um, where he would quietly listen to whatever is being presented on whatever matter, whatever uh, substantive matter that he might not have known about intuitively. He was trained and in, the, in that presentation, he would listen quietly. And then at the end of it would ask the question that cut right to the heart of it. And basically it was a question that asked, well, why couldn't we do this? 
And that kind of thinking is what you take back to your office and you, and you ingrain in your, your daily challenges. And you think, well, why can't we do this? Well, what will happen if we do this? What would happen if we do that? We are trained constantly here to think outside the box. And so as I identify leaders throughout the company on every level, and there are leaders on every level, um, I, I learned how to be the best person at WWE, not just from my role, but for WWE. So I learned not just from the department heads how to lead and manage a team, um, whether it be my personal team or whether it be the legal affairs team, how to contribute to a team, I learned. But I also learned that you can't just connect with the people at the top of each department. You really need to meaningfully connect with every single level, those who actually do the work. You need to know how are things playing out operationally in the agreement that I just am in the middle of negotiating. Because if I can't visualize how this is happening, I'm not really contributing enough to this agreement negotiation process. So there are leaders and mentors that I have found in every single level throughout my time here, and they change. It hasn't just been, been one. But I will say if I had to choose one, and it's not just because I work here, I will say Vince McMahon is really an incredibly inspirational leader to watch and learn from. Always good to choose the boss as the most inspiring um, mentor. I didn't just do it for that reason. <laughs> um, Favorite wrestler or character, pick one. That's really hard. As I said in the very beginning, I didn't know enough about WWE when I first started. And so I thought that what I needed to do to get engaged and to really get excited about a brand was to kind of pick one and make him my favorite. And at the time it was Edge, whose uh, real name is Adam Copeland. Um, he was more than a rising star at the time. He was part of a tag team, but he was exceptional. He was dynamic in ring. And he always seemed like a really great guy, even though I hadn't yet met him at the time. And I said, let me just get all in on edge and I will follow the product and follow him. And, and through that process, really become excited about the product. And I did. It was, didn't take long. I had all the edge action figures, all the edge paraphernalia in my office. My office has since become quite a museum. I know you've seen it. So it's become quite a museum of, of all the product we have. Um, but Edge was kind of my, my jumping off point. Um, he has still remained one of my faves to this day. I actually was able to meet him. We had a great conversation with him and he did prove to be the great guy I always thought he would be and was. Um, uh, so he, I will say, has always been one of my favorites, although there are so many to mention. I will say everybody always asks, another question is, you know, have you met the talents? And I have had the, for the really good fortune of meeting a lot of the talent. I will say that every single one of them is genuine and sweet and kind and cares about the families and cares about the fans and cares about the business and actually cares about the employees who are working so diligently behind the scenes to get this product do going. Um, they know it's not just them in the ring. It's everybody involved. It's a Herculean effort um, of magnitude proportions, and they appreciate that. So it's, it's, it's always humbling and amazing when you meet them. They are a, a great bunch of men and women. If you weren't a lawyer, what would you have been? One word answer. <sighs> I don't know. I don't, I can't envision doing anything else. As, as I said, I love doing what I do so much that I'm so happy doing it that I really can't envision doing something else. Last one, uh, when COVID finally clears 100%, what's the very first thing that you and or your, you'll do with your family? Travel. I miss travel. I love travel. Um, okay. So Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, really great to hear about you and all the exciting things that you do and the company is doing uh, to entertain fans all over the world. Um, 
this will wrap up uh, the Legal Innovators Interview Series podcast for today. Please be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Mark Kornfeld from Canon, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much.